Welcome to Purpose Inc., the podcast where we discuss corporate purpose and stakeholder capitalism. I'm your host, Michael Young. So one of the key questions I want to look at on this podcast is how organizations can move toward inclusive capitalism. And obviously, one of the big issues there is leadership which is why I am very excited to have today's guest on the podcast. Um, Anthony Goodman is Managing Director at Russell Reynolds Associates Board and CEO Advisory Partners. And in that role, Anthony is a specialist in helping boards and CEOs understand and and, and face the challenges that are shaping the world from disruptive technology to shifting demographics, pressure from investors and regulators, and, and how those issues impact leadership and governance. Anthony serves as the co-chair of the conference board, ESG Center on Human Capital Oversight and Disclosure, Prior to working at Russell Reynolds, Anthony spent more than 12 years at Tapestry Networks, an organization convening board directors, investors, regulators for peer learning and mutual understanding. He's co-authored chapters on board shareholder engagement in the Handbook of Board Governance, published by Wiley. And for five years, from 2009 to 2014, Anthony wrote the leading view column for the Financial Times. He's got a long and distinguished career in change management consulting. Uh, Anthony was educated at New College, Oxford. He holds a Master's of Arts in Politics, Philosophy, and Economics. He was also elected president of the Oxford Union, the world's oldest and most prestigious debating society. Needless to say, we will not be debating Anthony here but looking forward to his insights and his views. Anthony is a former colleague and a good friend, and I am thrilled to have him on the podcast. Anthony, thank you for coming on the podcast. Well, thank you for having me, Michael. Excellent. So, Anthony, I think as we've discussed, one of the the big questions that I want to investigate on this podcast is... Uh, you know, an elaboration of the central question, which is whether and how businesses can recast themselves as constructive social actors. And while purpose and stakeholder considerations have been business norms for a long time, I think it's fair to say that more organizations seek to become more purpose-driven and stakeholder-focused. And certainly investors and asset managers are increasingly looking at, at organizations through the lens of ESG to understand and engage corporate risk across an array of issues and challenges. And so an important and large question, I think, is how are organizations going to get there and who's going to lead them? And I think it's safe to say that leadership matters on the journey toward a more inclusive form of capitalism. So from where you sit, Anthony, how do you think about that and and how do you see it? And I'm looking forward to uh, hearing your thoughts on, on leadership and stakeholder capitalism, and in particular, the role of boards and directors in along this journey. 
Yes, uh, thanks, Michael. And I, I think you're right when you say that leadership matters. I mean, as with almost everything that companies do, at the end of the day, it is management uh, that is going to do the work around purpose. But I think that there's a clear role for the board as well, which is to hold management accountable for this. So some management teams may be reluctant uh, to go down this path. Uh, and they will need guidance uh, from their board directors. But it seems to me that one of the big challenges uh, for both management and the board is, is to actually define the purpose of the company. It's not so easy to do, to come up with something that is authentic and meaningful uh, and that is not, you know, for want of a better word, purpose washing. Um, whereby we can come up with, you know, something like Google's famous uh, don't be evil. But, you know, does that really impact what people do on a day-to-day -day basis? And importantly, does it impact the strategy of the organization in any way? Does it influence the products and services that are being uh, provided? The fact is not every service and not every product is a great gift to humanity. So thinking through carefully, you know, what the purpose of the organization is going to be, that may well need to be initiated, probably should be initiated by the CEO and, and, and the senior leadership. Uh, but at some point, there's going to be a dialogue and the board will need to be involved in that dialogue. Because if the purpose is genuine, it is going to influence everything about the company and therefore the board has to understand the purpose and understand how it applies to the different stakeholders the company has and what it's intended to do and how could they measure the impact and have it influence management's compensation. And, and you and your team at Russell Reynolds recently released a study on global corporate governance trends. And I'd, I'd love for you to walk us through the, the major findings of that report in particular. And then I think out of, out of those big findings, there are a number of <clears throat> topics uh, and, and questions that, 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 that emerge from that. So could you maybe give us a, an overview of that? Yes, I'm happy to do that, uh, Michael. And as you say, we do this uh, every year. We speak to about uh, 40 governance experts around the world, um, either uh, they're part of large institutional investors or they may be activist investors. They may be working for the proxy advisors or they may be just observers of the corporate governance um, world. And we ask them what they think the major trends are going to be for the next year, because we want to try and give our clients, uh, who are boards and, and, and senior leadership in the companies, some kind of a heads up about what to expect in the coming year. And um, we, we published uh, early January, and there were really sort of five key themes that came out uh, this year. And I'll briefly talk about each one, and then you can ask me questions about them. But the first was a big emphasis around um, the E and the S of ESG. So for those who are unfamiliar, ESG stands for Environmental, Social and Governance. It's a framework for thinking about companies, for thinking about investments. 
uh, and it's become more and more influential, and we can get into why uh, later on in the conversation. But the, there's been, a, you know, the last few years, the focus has been very much on the G or governance and a lot of pressure on uh, boards to move towards, uh, we say in the United States, things like majority voting and proxy access. But there's now much more of an emphasis going to be on the environmental and social part of the equation. Um, environmental is really boiling down right now to climate risk and, and opportunity. Uh, and the social side could reflect a number of different things, whether it's labor practices uh, in one jurisdiction or one particular sector, or it could be, you know, how the company is interacting with the community uh, in another place. So um, big, big emphasis around this. And we're going to start hearing about organizations like SASB, uh, which is the uh, Sustainability Accounting Standards Board, which helps set standards around materiality for companies who want to report on their sustainability or their ESG. Uh, some of these terms are going to become more uh, boardroom uh, understood over the next year or so than, than they may have been today. So that's the first thing. The second thing is actually around purpose, where we started out conversation that there's a lot more emphasis on this. In the US last year, the Business Roundtable uh, put out their statement on the purpose of the corporation. That was followed by the World Economic Forum, uh, who put out their statement um, at the end of the year. Uh, and basically, what they're both pushing for is much more of a stakeholder view of capitalism than has been the case to date. I think this is going to be really important, actually, for organizations. If you look at the kind of pressure that is going to exist if, say, uh, President Bernie Sanders uh, gets elected, um, you know, the companies are going to be under a lot of pressure to be thinking about the different stakeholders. And so getting a head start around some of this at an early stage is going to be important, and it's important to invest well. The third trend was better oversight of corporate culture and human capital management. Sometimes that gets lumped under the S of ESG um, because it's a way of thinking about employees in particular, but really making sure that the company understands uh, what the corporate culture is, what they desire it to be, how to get from one to the other, and how they're going to attract and retain the best talent in order to deliver on their strategy. The fourth one is taking a more expansive view of board diversity. So up till now, the focus pretty much globally has been around gender diversity. And we've seen in different countries uh, either laws or regulations put in place to increase the number of women on boards. What's been behind all of that is the fact that investors want cognitive diversity on the board, but they'll happily settle for gender and increasingly racial and ethnic diversity as a proxy for cognitive diversity, because they believe that the decision making the boards make is going to be better the more diverse they are. And what you'll see this year is a bigger push around ethnicity and race, particularly in the U.S., where Vanguard and the New York City Controller's Office have really pushed quite hard around this issue. And it'll be about disclosure to begin with, 
uh, but eventually it's going to come down to what are you actually doing. And the final thing is companies facing increased activism. So we've had the traditional activist investors for the last few years, and they've made great headway in getting companies to settle with them and put their directors on the board. But increasingly, you're going to see NGOs getting into this space, and you're going to see employee shareholder activism. We've already started to see that at companies like Google, where um, employees will use their shareholdings to push proposals at the annual meeting. We, even if they're not going to succeed, does have the ability to embarrass the company into taking action. So we think there'll be other forms of activism companies will need to face sort of over the years ahead. Excellent. Thank you for that. <clears throat> and if I could, maybe just to go back on uh, each of those um, and, and spend a, a further moment um, in looking at them. The first, um, the E and the S of ESG uh, becoming more salient and predominant. Um, I think one of the findings in your report was that boards and management are mostly playing catch up on how to define and oversee ENS. And, and you mentioned some of the reporting frameworks, um, uh, SASB in particular, but there are a number that have been out there, uh, UN Sustainable Development Goals, GRI. Do you think, is, is your view that there will ultimately become a narrowing and consensus around the reporting frameworks and 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 do you think that is the that is the vehicle through which boards and management can in essence get around on these issues faster and more coherently yeah, i think so you know for a long time you know if you put these issues to boards directors would say well look there isn't a standard that everyone accepts so you know why should i do something you know, let, let, let's wait and see what emerges as the sort of front-running uh, standards here, and then then we can react. I think we're getting into that territory now. There was certainly in the conversations we had with the forty-plus people we spoke with a sense that um, SASB and uh, something called the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, sometimes also called the uh, Bloomberg. Uh, commission, uh, and it is the same one, uh, Michael Bloomberg, who chaired that for the Financial Stability Board, um, that those two are starting to move ahead of the pack uh, compared with some of the others. Because what investors would really like to see is comparability uh, at the end of the day, and they can only get that if companies start using similar approaches uh, to how they report on um, sustainability. So, uh, you know, those are the front runners in the pack. We think they'll probably break away uh, and you'll start to see consensus emerging around this. And then the excuse that well, we can't do anything because there's no globally accepted standard will start to diminish. Um, 
So, you know, this this is going to be a big issue for companies and it's inescapable. The investors have been here earlier because they all signed up to the UN principles of responsible investing and they're being held accountable for this. And in many jurisdictions, there's actually not just a corporate governance code, but a stewardship code that also holds investors accountable. And of course, the investors are global. So if they have to abide by the stewardship code in the UK and react a certain way there, it starts to impact how they operate around the world because you, you're going to move your practices to the, the standard that you have to meet in the toughest jurisdiction. Um, so for, for companies in the US who've long thought that they could escape the microscope, uh, I think that's that's going to diminish very, very clearly. And Larry Fink's letter this year and the statement from State Street Global Advisors that followed has made it clear that they are looking at companies to respond appropriately and take environmental and societal issues a lot more seriously uh, than maybe they have been. Into the, the the whole question of corporate purpose, I you know, appreciate your comment that not every organization can and necessarily will align behind some large umbrella corporate purpose, but many are are, are trying to do better, and and I think y- you mentioned public opinion as one of those. Uh, it, one of those pressures, um, internal, external, regulator, investor, uh, all coming to bear. <clears throat> what what do you think are the hazards for and the opportunities for organizations as they embark on a purpose journey? Well, you know, the, the issue I think that they have to be careful about is the CEO getting out ahead of, uh, ahead of his skis here and not having the board alongside. Um, one of the things we heard very clearly from the investors was um, that they want to make sure that CEOs have discussed positions they're going to take uh, with the board before they take those positions. And they want to understand how those positions are going to fit with the strategy um, and the purpose of the organization. So that the risk is the CEOs see uh, are under pressure or want to take a position on something. And you can think about controversial issues that, that you know, particularly in the US in an election year, uh, things like gun uh, control, um, gender pay gap and so on. Um, and they just, I think, need to make sure that they've got the organization alongside them, the board alongside them before they set down a particular road, uh, because that I think is, is a big risk. Definitely. And, and some, uh, and some good and bad examples always, uh, emerging in the landscape on that, on that particular topic. Uh, Moving on to culture and, and human capital management. And, and, and this seems to be, you know, increasingly, um, where 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 spotlight is being shined and and human capital management <clears throat> often as a proxy uh, for corporate culture and and talent attraction. Can you talk a little bit more about 
that that particular dimension of uh, what you're seeing and the role that that not only cognitive diversity on the board, but what that should translate into within the organization and within the corporate culture. Absolutely. And, you know, boards are, uh, haven't played a serious role here before. And we sometimes still come across board directors who will say, I don't really understand why this is an issue that the board is looking at. It's an issue for management. But I think that, you know, when we look at some of the big uh, culture debacles that have occurred over the last few years, um, you know, in the banking world and elsewhere, we can see that, you know, the absence of board interest um, has been problematic, to say the least. And investors are clearly looking for boards to act on their behalf to ensure that the risks and indeed opportunities around culture are being um, dealt with appropriately by management. Because culture is, an, is a, important in attracting and retaining the talent you want in the organization. So, you know, having a really good culture makes a big difference. But also it contains within it potential risks when you get a bad culture that people behave badly, there's no accountability mechanisms, and you end up in some very difficult uh, situations that end up destroying shareholder value. So you can see why the shareholders want to make sure you know that that uh, this is being handled correctly. But the challenge for boards is that a lot of the mechanisms that they typically want to see, like uh, really good data, uh, aren't there yet around human capital management and culture. So you know we talk to boards and they'll say, well, yes, we see the annual employee survey data. And that's about the only thing they're seeing. But that is only one expression of a corporate culture. And there are many other things. And within each company and within each industry, there would be a different set of data you'd want to look at. If you were in the oil and gas industry, you'd want to look at um, health and safety data, uh, for example. So being able to put together a dashboard of the key metrics and making sure that they are regularly coming in front of the board and the board can keep track, uh, I think is a challenge a lot of companies are dealing with right now. Not only because um, management often don't know all the data that's available, but also because the data is embedded in different functions and different divisions across the company. And being able to pull all of that together in a coherent way for the board um, it's going to take a little bit of time, but it's going to have to be done. Now, when, when that stuff comes to the board, here's where board diversity kicks in, because everybody hears the story differently. And having a diverse board means that you're most likely going to get the right questions being asked. Uh, for instance, if you're making a big deal of diversity and inclusion as part of your culture, it rather helps if you have a diverse board <laughs> Uh, that's actually having that conversation. Um, and indeed, uh, we've seen um, diverse board directors, ethnic and racially diverse board directors, gender diverse board directors actually get involved with employee resource groups inside companies because they are seen as role models and they are seen as being important. And sometimes there are more of them on the board than there are diverse people in senior management. So uh, the board can play a very important role.
just that whole idea that capital and human capital is central to risk mitigation because it isn't, we've seen so many examples of what's going on inside the organization suddenly metastasize and come into the public view in ways that were not visible previously. And um, maybe just a comment about, um, and, and because I'm, you know, here in San Francisco, Silicon Valley, and I pay some attention to the big tech giants, a number of them are um, structured around multi-class share structures, which it, it, by my reading and, and some observations tend to limit board authority Do you th- or governance, if you will. Um, and I think we've seen a couple of examples where recently where founder shares and voting rights um, had to be taken away with extreme measures. How do you think that is going to evolve given all of the broader macro trends that we've been talking about here? I think um, it's clearly a big issue. Um, It it first came to prominence when um, Snap did their IPO. But it's it carried on, and then of course with WeWork, uh, you know, it, it, it was a sort of one of the big issues there. But but we've seen it elsewhere as well. I think you know what the investors are really looking for is to have sunset provisions. So I think they understand that in order to get our companies to be as successful as they are, particularly in Silicon Valley, it takes a certain type of structure. Uh, to um, help a certain type of entrepreneurial personality be successful and and have control of the organization and get it to a certain stage of growth. I think the issue is when they IPO and they want to take uh, money from other forms of investors, institutional investors who have beneficiaries of their own to think about, uh, that as part of the IPO, they, the investors would like to see that those provisions will eventually diminish. And so, you know, you might say after five years, after seven years, those dual class structures would go away. And then I think investors would be a lot more comfortable. So they're not saying no, and they're not saying never. I think what they're saying is they have a role, they have a place, but like training wheels on a on a kid's bike, uh, after a while, you've got to take the training wheels off and let, let the kid race its bike along with all the others. Yeah, absolutely. And I, so some sunsetting provision to those structures makes sense. And maybe Adam Newman saying that his descendants would be running WeWork in 300 years probably wasn't a message that was terribly well received. Maybe the last question, and and we'll wrap it up here, is if you've got a particular view on how boards are looking at and thinking about ESG ratings, and in particular, um, MSCI, Sustainalytics, um, so there, there are others there. And you see, I've, I've seen at least in annual reports and in on sustainability portions of company websites, 
mention of inclusion in uh, rankings, et cetera. And I guess related to an earlier topic when we were talking about consensus around reporting frameworks, how do you see ESG ratings as a dimension to accountability, transparency, and maybe to an extent, um, um, pressure on the organization? How do you think about that? Well, as you point out, there's a lot of different ratings uh, organizations out there. Um, And, you know, I think companies have to take right now, we'll have to take a look at all of them and think about how to maximize uh, the way they tell their story uh, to really maximize their uh, ratings in the directions they want them to go. Because others are looking at them. Investors are looking at them. NGOs are looking at them. Others are looking at them. So um, being able to uh, ensure that you're getting your story out is is really important. Um, and that's why some of the other frameworks like SASB are, are really helpful to companies in telling a story that will enable it to be a little bit comparable with others in their sector. If you don't put the data out yourself, uh, you are still going to be rated by others, but they're going to be rating you based on their opinions, their data, not on things that you've put out in the public domain. And so uh, it's never going to reflect that well on you. So I think it's important that you are disclosing, you are telling your own story, and as much as possible, you're attempting to maximize um, the ratings uh, the way you want them to be and looking at all of them, or at least the most important ones, uh, and seeing how you measure up. And sometimes Quite small, uh, innocuous changes can make a big difference in the rating. Yeah, that's that's a great point. And I think that you mentioned storytelling and narrative and, and the tension between what you say yourself versus what others will say about you inevitably is something that, that definitely needs to be managed. The good news is that the uh, biggest institutional investors have got large teams who will take the time and effort to look at the data you put out there and are not just reliant on third parties to tell them what to think and do. Well, Anthony, this has been a, I can't believe it's 35 minutes. This has been a fantastic half hour and uh, a great survey of, of board leadership and governance issues. And I really thank you for your time and for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me. These are really great topics to be talking about. And the more we can have companies and boards understand them, uh, the better it's going to be for all of us. And Anthony, just real quick, how can people get in touch with you? Uh, They can uh, get hold of me. I'm on Twitter at Anthony Goodman. And uh, they can also email me at Russell Reynolds. And if they go to the website, russellreynolds.com, they can find my email there. Fantastic. Anthony, thank you again. Have a great day. The Purposing Podcast is a production of Actual Agency, helping innovators communicate in a changing world. More at www.actual.agency.com.